Hi, hi. This is the Blinded by the Light companion podcast. This is the Traveling Symphony Movie Club. My name is John, and I'm Katie. Hi, everyone. And we thought we'd do something a little bit different for this one because we had such a fantastic guest on our live show, which was on last Friday night.、Uh, we had the director Gurinder Chadder join us for the pre-film introduction, then all the way through the film on our live text chat, and then after the film, she spent. About forty minutes with us answering questions from fans and the people who watched the film. It was just so good. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing to hear all of her insights, all of the little extra nuggets of information of what was going on on set on a certain day, or the inspiration behind a certain moment.、Uh, what was your favourite thing that you think you learned? The best thing about it was having her there watching the film with us. If you Um, haven't joined us for a live show.、Um, what we do is we use this chat on a Discord server, which sounds really techy, but it's not actually. It's just like a big、um, WhatsApp. It's just、group. like a big WhatsApp group, yeah. But you don't have to share your mobile number, and you know we're all kind of chatting and talking during the film and saying, oh, you know, I like this song, I like this bit, whatever. But to have her there, giving context, and like you say, just. All of those other little bits and nuggets of information that you would never otherwise know—they're not like just out there on the internet or anything. They're not on IMDb. There's the one scene,、um, the storm scene, which is like probably one of the most famous scenes from the film, and it's quite, it's quite early on, isn't it? And she just said the whole film hinged on this scene, like the success and failure, and it was like wow, and it's so true. It was such such a wonderful conversation. It was such a privilege as well to to be able to spend that time with her and for her to give that time to us. And over the weekend, we also got the chance to speak to Mira Ganatra, who plays Javed's mum, Noor, in the film. We'll be playing a little bit from our conversation with her later on in the podcast, but we'll start with our chat with Gurinder. So you'll hear the pre-film show bit first, then a little bit of music, then the post-film show bit after that. And we started off by asking her how the film came about in the first place. Well, Safran and I have been friends for a long time. Obviously, we bonded over Bruce many years ago after I read an article that he wrote about Bruce, and I was like、uh, really surprised that another Asian person liked Bruce as much as me. And, <laughs> and,、um, and then, about a few years into that friendship, he said, "You know, I'm, I'm writing a memoir." And I said, "Great, well, let's have a look when it's done." And obviously, Bender like Beckham had been out and had been big, you know, a big hit. And so, as he was writing his memoir, in his heart, he was hoping that the, I would like it. I read the memoir and I said, "I know, I know how to turn this into a really good film." But without Bruce, there's no movie. That was 2008, and then in 2010. Uh, I got invited to the premiere of The Promise at the BFI on the South Bank. Yeah, and、um, and I took Safran's with me, and we were both filming each other on the red carpet、uh, as Bruce <laughs> was approaching, and we were getting extremely excited. And <laughs> as Bruce approached, he looked at Safran's because, of course, Safran's had seen him like a million times. <laughs> you recognised this like Pakistani kid with a big afro. And he looked at Safran and he came over, and I ran over as well. And he said, "Hey, man, I read your book. I read your book. It was really beautiful." Oh man! And then, and then Safran was like, "Oh 
my god oh my god and then i was like oh my god you oh that's so great you read it we want to make a movie of it you know i made friend like beckett like uncool uncool and then um safraz was like who sent it to you how did you get it <laughs> we were like the most uncool pair of people bruce basically said um sounds good talk to John and John Landau <laughs> was behind him and so and other managers including Tracy Nurse and we basically uh swapped numbers and then the next big task was knowing that we had to write a script that was going to appeal to Bruce mm. and so then that's where our journey began got the script together sent it to Bruce and word came back with him saying, yeah, I'm all good with this. What sort of feeling was what that else? when he gave you the thumbs up? Oh, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because, you know, if you are a big fan, see, the thing about Bruce is that it's not just about the music and seeing him live that is incredible. It's the words. Mm. It's what he sings about. And they're incredibly relatable to everybody because mm. he sings about the ordinary man or woman mm -hmm. you know ordinary people who are trying to get by and sometimes you know luck is not on their side in terms of work or or migration mm. or you know and and he he is so sincere uh that's why he has so many diehard fans i think mm. his ability to connect emotionally with people and so the big task for me then was to make a movie with the songs that he gave me he gave me 19 songs you know wow. wow yeah like it was incredible you know and he basically said to the manager he said give her what she wants you know wow, wow. and i was like oh my god how <laughs> that then is a pressure because then like you know i don't want to mess up born to run you know because <laughs> i'm shooting that sequence with the kids running around looping mm. up, like oh my god what is he gonna think is he gonna like it like, <laughs> so there was a lot of pressure on me to make a film with his music that stood up to his mm. music for his fans and the way that the script writing process was developed like was it a real combination of both of your experiences and and were there a few of your things that translated onto screen of stuff that you experienced growing up well, the difference is that um, Sapphires is a fantastic uh, uh, journalist. Obviously, he wrote the memoir and it's his uh, story, you know, but obviously, you know, he's not an experienced screenplay writer. So what was great was being able to uh, use him as a resource, you know, um, mm. in terms of details for when I kind of wanted to get the script into uh, final stages to shoot. But what, um, you know, Safraz is really good with is his words, you know, as mm. a journalist. And this is a film about words, you know. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Safraz gave me was all his poems uh, oh, that he wow. wrote, you know, at that time, you know. And I found that the most incredible resource. And so I used those poems a lot, you know, as inspiration when mm. I came to do my past. Uh, as well as using uh, Bruce's songs as dialogue. You know, I've made a fair few films now, so um, I, I kind of know what my shtick is. I know how I, you know, want to tell a story. I'm very mm. much on top of how 
I'm, I want you to feel as you're watching mm. it. And I want, I have a message and I want to convey that message. And I want to use music in a particular way. And there's all kinds of balances and negotiations mm. that go on. Culturally, you know, you're making it for everyone, but you also want to make sure people who are from that background also, you know, find the resonance there. There are mm. Bruce fans to think about. There's our parents' generation. The audience is very diverse. And, mm. But my message is aimed at everybody, you know. And so mm. as a film director and as a writer, like I was like really on top of what I wanted to do in this film. And I think what's been really interesting of late is that, you know, my sort of brand is really to be hopeful, you know, mm. and, and sometimes I get criticised for that, you know, because a lot of, films are quite cynical you know i mean mm. i i had a conversation uh last year with uh, the, uh, todd phillips the director of uh joker like you couldn't have two very different films you know mm. and and he said you know i loved your film you know it was so joyful and then he said my film's joyful too you know <laughs> and i'm like really and he said oh yeah it's very joyful so right. in a particular way so i think what's happening of late, you know, the last few weeks in terms of the world, people have now been rediscovering it or watching mm. it for the first time and seeing it in a different light because it really is about humanity and it really is about, you know, when someone's able to break through and connect, you know, in a big way. And the fact mm. that this, uh, you know, young 16-year-old Pakistani kid holds up in Luton you know, was finding the words of a, you know, a New Jersey American kid, you know, who was writing about his experience 3,000 miles away a decade earlier. The fact that these two connected in some ways is kind of what we're doing now, you know, yeah. connecting with people. So the film really has great, um, even more meaning, I think, now. So I'm very pleased it's been on HBO and, and a lot of people have seen it and... Uh, I yeah, think that it's that, that universality is, is such an important aspect yeah. of the storytelling process. We were talking with Danji Bhaskar for one of our other podcasts and he, had a, a, he said something that really stuck with yeah. me. And he said that when we look at stories from other cultures, even other regions, mm -hmm. until we think of their stories as our stories, they're always going to be somebody else's. And I think that that was something, again, it was that trying to... It's something that Safra said in that article, yeah. write something very specific, but in doing so, it appeals to everybody because there's identifiable bits from everybody's lives that they can pinpoint. Yeah. That, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the same with uh, Bend It Like Beckham, that you were able to see the world from the perspective of an 18 year old Indian girl from Hounslow, you know. Mm -hmm. That you saw the world from her perspective and what we saw was that the world recognised that world and it wasn't too mm. different to their own, you know. And that's a film that keeps going on and on and on <laughs> and on. It's 18 years now. And um, so I'm hoping that, that, you know, I've managed to do the same thing with Blinded is that people will keep coming back to it in the same way that people rediscover Bruce's music, you know, mm. a, a new generation. I mean, that's what was great about the film is that a whole new generation said, wow, we didn't know this is what he sang about. Mm. We, we, in fact, most people say thank you for putting the lyrics up on the screen because we don't know what to say. <laughs> but it's 
because he mumbles so much. Yeah, it, it's true. It, but ha that was such a great technique. And I don't want to obviously give anything away, but it really does make you think a lot about the words. And like you mm. say, it's his words that are so important. It's his message, his voice, what he's saying. And it speaks to you. And it obviously speaks to the character, the main character, Jack. Yeah. Every Bruce song is um, is as is. I didn't cut anything around. Yeah. I just was very respectful. But I really, really wanted to use Jungle Land, which mm. is uh, one of my favourite songs. That and Thunder Road, um, and and I and I. But I I could only use the last verse that were lyrically correct. But I wanted to use the saxophone solo. And I knew it, I could see it. I wanted to use the saxophone solo over the NF march. Mm. Um, there's something about the saxophone solo, is, it just is soaring, you know, it's, mm. it rises above what you're seeing. And um, it's quite spiritual, actually. So I, I wanted to use that bit at the end, but I would have had to cut the two, I'd had to, I had to cut the song in three sections. I went to New York and uh, Bruce was on Broadway and I asked to see him. And so I went to see the show and then after the show, I was in this room and he came in and I kind of nearly fell on the floor. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and then he was standing there and he was tired, obviously. And then he said, how's it going? How's the movie going? And I said, you know, we haven't started, we're about to start, but I have one question. I really want yeah. to use Jungle Land and where I want to use it is quite sensitive and I need to cut it into places. But I really want to use the Clarence Clemens uh, saxophone solo over the fascist marching. And he looked at me and he really thought about it. And then he said, I think Clarence would really like that. You must. Oh. And I was like, oh, my God, if I didn't love you already, you know. So, oh, that, so that jungle land sequence for me is very precious because... Yeah. It's a, for Clarence in many ways. Yeah. And so, so then, so that was when I saw him. And then when I finished the film, or I finished my director's cut, I said uh, to his team that I can't lock this film until he sees it. Yeah. Because I have no idea what he's going to think of what I've yeah. done. Mm. And see, don't forget all these songs, everyone who's seen Bruce, right? They're like, um, huge anthems and, and those of us who've seen him so many times we know as soon as uh that harmonica starts on thunder road yeah. we all sing you know yeah. yeah as soon as things happen we all sing along and so i was taking those anthems of his and reinterpreting them and so i don't know born to run that's his sort of end song and i was sort of sticking it at this point i couldn't tell anymore but i knew i had to have him watch the film yeah, and, and he was interested. He wanted to see it, mm. and so we went. I went to New York, and I sat in this room, and it was him and a few of his managers, and he kind of shuffled in, and he was a bit nervous too. I think, you know? yeah. And then I sort of said, "Look, I just want you to know that every decision I've made in this film has been based on will would Bruce like this decision? Mm. Would Bruce yeah. approve of this?" And then he was like, okay, like no pressure kind of thing. <laughs> so then anyway, so the movie started and I sat at the back. As it played, I said, this is no good. I need to see what he's thinking. So I moved <laughs> forward and then I sat sort of diagonally behind him and I kept sort of looking <laughs> by the side to see his face. 
but what I could see is his crow's feet, so I could see when he was smiling. Ah, <laughs> and um, and so he, as the film started, initially he was like, oh. And a couple of times he was like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> and then I saw him sort of like warm up, and then he started laughing a lot. He laughed all the way through. Every single oh, gag he laughed at. He laughed at that. I said that um, Born to Run, you know, um, did you write that? I told you lyrics were rubbish. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. He absolutely could afford at that. He likes the, um, uh, is that Billy Joel line, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So anything that was self-deprecating about Bruce, he really liked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but then when all the racism stuff happened and the stuff with the dad happened, that got really serious for him. Yeah. Because obviously he had issues with his own dad. And then... As it carried on, it all went very quiet in the room. Mm. And then at the end, there was absolute silence. I wasn't quite sure how to take yeah. that. So I thought, well, I'll go to the front and I'll get my little DVD out and then I'll go outside so he can talk to his managers. Yeah. So mm. that's what I thought. So I went, went out, got put the lights on. And as I was about to leave, I saw through the corner of my, he kind of got up and he walked over and then he put his arms around me and he gave me a big kiss. And he uh, said, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. I'm blown away, he said. Uh, and then I sat with him for an hour and we talked about all the things that he loved and all the things that, he, that were funny. And um, he said his favorite section was Born to Run. Mm. And he absolutely loved it's Born brilliant. to Run. Well, one of the things that he talked about that was so funny was the fact that I used Tiffany in the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When Tiffany was number one with that, I think we're alone now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He couldn't get a song in the charts. Oh. You know? <laughs> and he and John saw that as like a really sad time for them because she was riding high, you know. So yeah. he was like, God, that girl, she was number <laughs> one and we couldn't even get a song anywhere near there. RTS asked, um, what was it that stood out when you were casting about each individual uh, actor? Was there any particular moments or aspects of them that you just instantly thought that's the, the right person? Well, for Jarvid, I saw about five different young lads. Three were very good and two were excellent. They all read really well. But my final choice came down to one thing that I did. I put Born to Run on on my speaker and I said, show me what your character would do to this song. And these poor kids, they never <laughs> even heard Born to Run. They didn't even oh, know who Springsteen was. <laughs> I would love to see that. And, they, and one of them just sort of like started freaking out. <laughs> really embarrassing. And the other one... Um, sort of closed his eyes and got lost in it, which was very sensible, actually. Yeah. The one who closed his eyes is who I cast as Jarvis. Because uh -huh. I believe that he would write poetry. Mm. You know? Yeah. And the other one I really liked a lot. He did really good scenes. I felt that he, he, he would stand up to his dad, you know, whereas I yeah. felt Beck wouldn't stand up to his dad. And so I cast him as Roops. And then everyone else, you know... Um, Dean, you know, I just, you know, he came in, he was very funny. So I cast him, you know, before he was big. And the actress who played Eliza, people probably don't know this, but her mum 
was in Friends. She was um, uh, Helen Baxendale, who was Ross's oh, yeah, English yeah. girlfriend. Emily. Yeah, so that was her mum. But I didn't know oh, that wow. when I cast her. But she'd been in a film where she played that, this punk rocker. She was really good. So I'd seen her work. Rob was a huge Bruce fan. I know, you know, he was a huge fan. And he said, look, I could look like a complete dick doing this. He said, but, <laughs> but if it means I get to meet Bruce. In that scene, I really, I felt like, I, and I was thinking, I bet, he, I bet he loves him. I feel like it came across so much when he was doing the song that I was thinking he must be a fan. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it's brilliant. It's so, so good. Yeah, um, and he got to meet Bruce as well. Oh, oh well, wow. I mean, that's worth the, the, doing the film in itself. I'm sure he just yeah. waved his feet. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, the same with David Heyman, mm. who I had just worked with on my film Viceroy's House. I sent David the script, and David said, Gorinda, there's nothing for me to do here, he said, as an actor. But the script is so wonderful that I can't say no. You know? <laughs> and, um... PZ said, how was it finding locations to film that captured the essence of Luton at the time? Apologies to all the Lutonites, but a lot of Luton looks like it's like it's <laughs> <laughs> So we actually didn't have to do much, you know. It didn't all... have to work too hard. I mean, we did create the HMV, you know, we created that. Mm. But a lot of the back streets are all as is. We created that market. The Arndale Centre was exactly the same. It would just change the signage. Greenfields Cafe, that's still the same, still looks the same. Wow. It's still, you know, it's still there. So a lot of, the only thing we shot the house uh, in Pinner. Uh, yeah. on, uh, and so that was the only thing that wasn't looted. But uh, apart from that, yeah, it was all it around was there. Amazing. Lewis asked, how long did it take to shoot? Um, what did you shoot on? And was it a long time to edit as well? Okay, so we shot on um, the usual digital movie stuff. Mm -hmm. Ben Smithard was my DP. Ben mm -hmm. recently did the Downton Abbey movie. But he also did Viceroy's House, which was actually on film. So this okay. was my first digital movie, actually. I think it was about um, six weeks shooting. A little bit of shooting in the States. Or was it five weeks? It might have been five weeks, sorry. And then editing was about six months. So it's quite a tight schedule then for, for both, I guess. Yes, yes. And, and, and I also got the green light for my TV series, Beecham House, around the same time. So I was trying to juggle both both things at the same time. It's not fair. <laughs> Gary wanted to know: Did you um, consider using the song "Factory" to describe the father son relationship between Javed and Malik? I could have used so many other songs. I just made it a very strict rule that I just had to follow the script mm -hmm. and use the songs that fit. You know, but there were lots of other songs that I wish I'd been able to use but I just think it would have got too much then if I put too many songs in you know mm -hmm. one of the things yeah. that Bruce liked was the fact that there were so many other songs from yeah. the 80s in that gave his his work context he loved that, hearing yeah. all the other yeah. 80s songs yeah. so, I, so I, I used a lot of other songs that rather than just Bruce as well and we kind of spoke a little bit about this before in our chat before that although 
it's um, a story about very specific themes and especially the British Asian um, kid growing up in Luton and, and that aspect of it. I also feel like that relationship really speaks to any child and parent growing up, those kind yeah. of struggles. And was that a specific aim of yours? You always try and make a universal film. Mm. You always try and tell a universal story. And I think most people, when they're growing up, you know, get into music that their parents don't approve of. You know, unless you're like um, Ab Fab and Adina and her daughter, you <laughs> yeah. know, that situation, you know. The thing is, is being a teenager mm. is always about negotiating who you are versus yeah. who your parents yeah. think you are and who you want to be, but you can't okay. quite manage it yourself, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I find that, um, that, 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 that even though these characters are Asian, you know, that it's a very, uni those, that component is very Asian. And the comments yeah. that we've been getting from people who've seen the film, you know, the mm. wonderful emails and all kinds of stuff is just people saying, I've never been able to talk to my dad, but we both watched the film together and we're both mm. crying and we get it. Amar, who had a lot of questions as well on the Discord live chat, I'm just going to pick one out. Uh, TV shows centering around South Asian expat culture have changed from things like Goodness Gracious Me, which revolve around discussion of South Asian, Asian culture and interaction with the mainstream to shows today like Man Like Mobin, which are more like people who would just happen to be part of the culture as opposed to focusing on the culture itself. What do you think about this shift of telling stories about identities and values? I love Man Like Mobin, you know. I think the more mm -hmm. stories, the better. You know, one person doesn't have to make a story for all of us. The great thing about culture is it's fluid. Anything that acknowledges that the world is different and diverse and vibrant and mm. all those things that we care about anything that shows that you know for me is great storytelling and I think in terms of the Asian community I just wish there were more you know more people around uh being able to tell their stories so yeah. a lot more variety what's next on your list have you got anything planned in the pipeline I have I mean before isolation hit um, I had been writing a new script, which I finished in February, and I very, very happily got financed. Uh, it was in March. It was one, It was the meeting where we were all, just before when we were all like touching elbows, you know, because we weren't sure <laughs> yeah. what to do. So I had one of those meetings with one of the financiers from Blinded by the Light. And um, basically they were like, yep, yeah, we love this script. The movie's greenlit. So I was like, yes. Um, and then this happened and now I'm like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> so I do have a movie planned. Um, I've written the script. I'm very pleased with the script. And it's a Christmas movie. And I've always wanted to do a Christmas movie. And my one of my favorite traditions at Christmas is to sit down uh, and watch It's a Wonderful Life. And mm -hmm. I do it religiously, like Christmas Eve, and I make my kids sit and watch it ever since they were little. And they're all like, Mom, it's black and white. Mom, we don't want to watch this. Why can't we watch Friday night dinner? You know, so it's all that. But I make them watch it. And then we all sit and they're all like huffing and puffing. And I bad all phones 
and then we watch it and then of course I start crying at the right <laughs> and then they look at me crying and they go oh god it means so much to me that film mm. and so I wanted to create a Christmas movie that was going to do the same for other people you know in Christmases yeah. to come and ironically oh, it's it's um I'm not going to give it away yet because I think it's bad luck. I need to get it all fully up and running. But it it has the same sense of heart and tolerance and humanity as mm. Blinded by the Light, you know. So it's it's definitely comes out of that bracket. Fantastic. And it's a musical as well, yeah. I think the Blinded by the Light is one that you could watch on an annual basis definitely. and have that same sort of feel-good aspect of it we had a lot of comments on the um the live chat people saying you know this is the exact type of film that we need to be watching right now to have that sort of warmth of human emotion and feeling of togetherness and uplifting so i think it's a it's a good a good thing to have i think at the moment this is not a time to be cynical you know and i think um i've sort of over the last 20 odd years you know i make films that are very you know, very uncynical and mm. hopeful. And even though they talk about racism and sexism and quite a lot of, you know, things that are uncomfortable, there's a lot in this film is uncomfortable. But I always feel at the end of the day, there is hope. And I feel that pe- there are more good people in this world than bad. And that, yeah. that our lives are about the people we connect with and our memories and shared moments. And so what I try and do in my films is create is to not shy away from making the points that I need to make, but at the same time connect and say, look, mm. this is how we connect. People want to make yeah. a lot about our differences and there's not enough people doing the opposite. So this this film came about after Brexit, when mm. after Brexit was announced, whether you, you were f- uh, for or against, it doesn't matter. What the most important thing for me was the way people started yelling at people of colour on the tube and on mm. buses. Yeah. And it suddenly just was so visceral. And that's what upset me about it. And then I and that's when I said, I need to make this movie now. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I made Blinded by the Light. It was really because of what happened after Brexit was announced. It's yeah. so relevant to yeah. today and the themes that you touch on there are, are things that we've noticed as well, things that our yeah. friends have noticed. And it's, it really shows that parallel between what was going on in the 80s and what's going on right now. Mm. Right. But because I ha- it ended with that sense of hope, and, you know, I have to, as a mother, as a mother of, you know, brown kids, you know, I have to give them strategies to deal with racism and prejudice Mm. so that's something that is important to me and that's why i i and other people out there so this film Mm. gives people strategies on how to deal with that what we're finding in the covid world is somehow that's locked in to how people are thinking and feeling right now because you know the one person for me who's been very quiet of late is nigel farage you know like (laughs) he's on telly all the time but like not a peep you know the reality is it's all those you know asian and black you know and arab and whatever doctors and nurses in uh, in the front line who are keeping us all together now and that's not a narrative that suits him so my narrative is the narrative that people want to hear i think because that's what's going to get them through this 
is to be mm. kind is to be tolerant and is to be human so so finally i'm in fashion yeah <laughs> <laughs> if society needs to hear my voice right now then the right film comes to me to make that's the only way i can describe it because there are films that are, i've been sent and i'll go no i don't want to do this this doesn't work for me i'm always juggling things but when I feel the time is right, I think, yes, I need to make this movie. It's every detail. I said to yeah. Katie while we were watching, you know, when people say that films are their babies and you really see it because yeah. it's every tiny detail that you, you perfect, oh, yeah. and you hone, and you try to make it just exactly how you want it. And it, was, it really came through. Totally. I mean, the scene, as I said, when we were watching, when um, the tickets get torn up, the theme song of the film is Promised Land, where the yeah. dog's on Main Street Howl because they understand, you know. When I heard that acoustic version, it blew my mind and I kept thinking, I want to use that somewhere. How can I use that somewhere? Yeah. So it's very exciting when things like that happen. And it wasn't in the script, it wasn't planned, you know, and it was an extra use of that song. So I had to get permission then creating that, that emotional montage there. I mean, that's for me as a filmmaker, you know, I've always loved music, working with music and images together. You know, for me, that's the biggest emotional punch, you know. Mm. And I remember in Bender Like Beckham when I used Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up, you know, mm. I was like, oh, yes, yes. So much of the magic of filmmaking comes, you know, when you're editing or also when you're shooting. You know, mm. so, so you have to, when you're shooting, be open to the world of your film and your characters and magic happens. And the other bit that I was so proud of was the day we were shooting in Jarvis' bedroom and we were supposed to be shooting Javid and his dad having another fight. And I was like, I don't need to see another fight. That's how the scene was written. So I had been wanting to use darkness, but I didn't know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And then it just occurred to me, why don't I make a hole in the set? So I cut a hole in the, in, it was a set in the bedroom. So I cut a hole in the wall above his desk and put the camera there on a slow track on his face and then did a cross fade as it were. So while dad is going, no, 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 you have to do this and you have to do that. And you kind of know what the dad is saying. And then you just keep going into Jarvis' head. And then the lyric, of course, of Bruce coming and going, well, you just got to cut loose, you know, you got to yeah. cut loose. And it just, the magic of that just all coming together in that moment, it literally was like a five minute moment on set. That's oh. the magic of filmmaking and you can't always plan that. And in this film, there's lots of magical moments like that, I think. And if you're a Bruce fan, your hair sort of goes up on end, I think, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. for sure. Definitely. Absolutely, for sure. How good was that? Fantastic. Really, really great. I think she's such an inspirational woman as well. And it really comes across and she was just so, so generous with her time and just really, really such a delight to talk to. So it was, yeah. it was really lovely. Yeah, absolutely. And as she said, these films, her films, which are about hope, are about human spirit, they're so uh, valuable at a time like this. And she said in the, in the chat that it seems like more people are engaging with and discovering her work now yeah, and I think that one of the things that really stuck out, 
um, for me that she said was how she writes stories that she thinks need to be told. She has a purpose behind her writing. She doesn't just write anything. She doesn't just do things because she thinks that'll be successful, that'll make me some money. She you know, feels that she is here to tell these stories in this way and also more importantly when it's the right time to tell that story. So now we are going to hear from Mira Ganatra who played Javid's mum Noor in the film. Again such a great opportunity to talk to somebody involved with the film. She was just so incredibly nice and accommodating and again a pleasure to talk to. We've been so lucky I think so far everybody we've spoken to has just been so brilliant and first up Mira told us how she got the part in the film. I trained as an actor later in life. I had a career in pharmacy first, so I'm a pharmacist. And then I had children and a family. Auditions and things were not sort of, it wasn't continuous, it was in and out. I wasn't kind of doing it my full focus the whole time. Since the kids had sort of grown, sort of they were five, six, I thought, okay, I need to get back. So I'd given it a couple of years where I'd been trying again and finding, you know, what my next project was. and. So I hadn't actually had very many big auditions because I've not done TV. With actors, it's quite tricky because until you break in for the first time, you don't get auditions. So if you don't get seen, you're not going to get the job. So I did theatre before the kids, so it's very different. So when I actually got this casting, I was a bit like, really? She wants to see me? (laughs) So I was actually very excited, you know, because I've seen, obviously, all her films and followed her work. My husband's worked with her, so it was always very much, I'd love to work with her at some point in my life. And so I got the casting, so I was very excited. Casting went well, uh, and then that was it. I was like, okay, I'm really pleased that I've actually just got in with just the casting. That was enough for me. There was quite a long wait because, obviously, until they cast the whole family, they weren't going to make any decisions. But then when I actually got the job, that's when I was a bit like it all sunk in, like, wow. It was lovely. It was amazing, quite overwhelming. But, uh, you know, Gurinder's very down to earth, made it very comfortable. Uh, So for me, the the whole filming experience, it was my first big feature, quite a decent part. Had a really, really good time. Learning experience. It was was very different. I did a lot of short films and corporate films and uh, a lot of what jobbing actors do. And then to go on to like a big set with so much more cast and crew and so much more at stake. It is very pressurised because there's just so many people involved and it's the time frame is quite limited. You have to deliver. <laughs> you know, when you're doing the scene, you don't want to mess up. So um, it was quite a learning experience, yeah. I feel like maybe when you're working on a film, there are so many different moving parts and there are so many people who have to nail it every time to get it right yes and if if say the focus puller gets it perfect and and everything is great and you're thinking oh god did i do my bit as well as i could have done was that a difficult sort of emotion to manage in the moment of course everyone can mess up and you know i think you've got to trust it might not be the perfect take in terms of how you think about it but as long as you've done enough to to make the scene work you do get a chance to record it a number of times it's not like it's one take and that's all and you know you've got the long shots the close-ups moving the camera around so you've got plenty of opportunities and and I think a lot of it also depends on the editing you might have had a perfect amazing scene 
And then that scene's not the bit that's chosen for those lines. There's so much, there's actually the editing, it, so much goes into the, the, the storytelling by the editor and the director, you know. The great thing is that Garinda knows exactly what she wants. Like she's got a real eye for detail and she's got the whole story visually in her mind. So actually that really helps. She can really pull out what she needs from you in each scene. Was anything in the film sort of, did it ring true to you with, with your experiences growing up in the UK? I mean, I grew up in London, which is very different to Luton, even though it's not that far. So yes, there are some things. There was racism. There was a struggle. I think I took a lot from my parents' lives because they came from India and set up in England. And, you know, it, it's very similar in the sense that they wanted to give their children a better life. So I was educated here, grew up here. But I saw a lot of the, the struggles, the hard work they did. My mum was, she was a doctor when she was in India, but when she came here, she it wasn't recognised in this country. And, you know, I guess she had to make a choice. Like she either had to do the conversion, which was difficult because English was not her first language, or she had to work in a factory in order to provide. And, you know, and she chose to work in a factory and, and retail and, you know, things that would benefit us rather than taking two years out to do the conversion. So I guess I took lots of those things that how that generation gave up so much for their children. So in that sense, I brought a lot of that to the, the character because that's what I saw. I, obviously, at the when you're a child, you don't really realise that or appreciate that. It's only sort of later when you have your own kids or when you grow up, you kind of think, oh, my God. Would I be that unselfish? I don't know, you know? I think as well, when you're growing up, you don't see your parents as people. <laughs> it, no. You, you don't, because you no. everything is about, yeah, everything is about you. So you don't even comprehend that your parents even had a life before you were born, because it's only, exactly. you know, your whole perception is just everything around you. Everything's about you. Yeah. yeah. Which is what, you know, teenagers do. And I guess that's what, you know, she balances that very well, though, because even though Javid does go into what he wants to do, he, he still um, manages to find a balance of trying to stay with the family, obviously, you know, because they are they are a loving, traditional, um, happy family. You mentioned that this was your first sort of major film role. What was it like seeing the, the finished product? It was quite scary, obviously, <laughs> watching because you, you you don't get to see any of it until it's completely done. So you've no idea if what you thought you did in your head is what's actually come across. And, you know, sometimes you do things and you're not 100% in terms of that maybe your judgments could have been different or there's lots of ways of playing any line. But you do trust the director because she's seeing the overall picture. So, you know, that was a great help. I, I knew I could trust Garinda too to make sure and steer me in the right direction if I was going somewhere else, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. So, um, but in terms of, yeah, seeing the film, it was really exciting, yeah, to be part of a great film, which will always be there. So that's, that's wonderful. 
Okay, that's just about it from us for this week's companion podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us if you had the chance to last Friday. Yeah, so if you're not already, it's a good idea to follow us on Instagram because that is kind of where we make all of our announcements about the next film and sort of tell everyone how to get involved. But also we're doing weekly votes on which films to watch. So if you want to have your say in choosing the next film, then that's the place to do that. We host a lot of great content on there as well. We do stuff like our favourite frames from the films, um, quotes uh, and fascinating facts. Hashtag fascinating facts. So there's, there's a lot going on on Instagram. That's kind of like our day-to-day content stuff. Well, obviously we would say it's good, but we actually do think it's really good. When you're finished listening to the podcast, if you have been enjoying them, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us... Um, a little rating or even if you have time to do a review that would just be amazing and every little bit like that helps and just helps us to keep going and get new people interested so we'd really appreciate it. The ratings and the reviews are also really important for helping new people find it because that's sort of one of the ways in which the podcast providers rate things, rank things. I didn't know that. Just learn something new every day. There you go. And another thing that we have been really trying to do is get everybody to share the movie club and share what we're doing, especially with, you know, family members that might be feeling a bit alone right now. And we've had lots of different generations of people, which is really lovely. So people sharing with parents and grandparents. And I know that it can sometimes be a little bit tricky to get people on like and using the tech side of things but we have set up some really good easy to follow videos on how to get set up and if you did want to share it with someone you think oh it might be difficult to explain just dm us or you know message us email us and we'll help you get set up because we really just want it to be a nice community thing where everyone can get involved our dm door is always open don't forget that and um, all of those videos that Katie mentioned will be on our website as well on travelingsymphony.com slash join. So that's how to get onto our Instagram and how to sign up to our Discord live text chat because it's not something that people are particularly familiar with. Okay, well, that's it for this week. And we will make sure that we speak to you very soon. We've got our announcement about this Friday's film will be going up on our Instagram today. That's Tuesday. And we'll be in regular touch all through the week with little bits and bobs of how to get involved and our preview podcast will be out in just a couple of days. Okay, we'll see you very soon. Bye, 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye.